I'm Rob Kirkup. Welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 65, we continue our travels through the haunted London underground, looking at another 15 haunted stations and tunnels with a whole host of spectral characters from the underground's history, and even further back, just waiting for us in the darkness offered by the world's oldest underground railway. This week we ask once again, just how haunted is the London Underground? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. The first station we will stop at this time is the British Museum station, which opened in 1900. The station is located in Holborn, and was named for the nearby British Museum, which was established in 1753 in Great Russell Street. In 1933, with the expansion of Holborn Station less than 100 yards away, British Museum Station was permanently closed. It was subsequently used as a military office and command post, but in 1989 the surface building was demolished. Its entrance had been situated where a branch of the Nationwide Building Society now stands in High Holborn. A portion of the eastbound tunnel is used to store materials for track maintenance, and is visible from passing trains. Even though the station closed 90 years ago, it's one of the best known stations on the underground when the topic of the paranormal is being discussed, as British Museum is the haunt of an Egyptian princess who has been given the name Amun-Ra. The cause of this is linked to an exhibit on display at the British History Museum, a coffin lid which was donated to the British Museum in July of 1889. The intricately decorated coffin lid was from a coffin from ancient Egypt, but the rest of the coffin, and the body that would have been inside the coffin, is not there. The craftsmanship and quality of the lid made it apparent that the owner must have been somebody of a high rank, a woman who may have been in the temple of Amun-Ra, which is where the name of the ghost has come from. Amun-Ra was actually one of the most popular deities of ancient Egypt. This god is a combination of Amun, the invisible god of the creation of all forms of life, and Ra, the falcon god of the creation of the stars and the earth, two of the most important deities of the Egyptian pantheon. The original form of Amun-Ra is Amun, however when the latter's popularity reached its peak, Amun's powers and attributes became merged with those of the god with the solar disk, Ra. Amun-Ra then became the creator of everything that exists. He is the creator of life through the attributes of Amun, and the creator of the universe through the attributes of Ra. The identity of the mummified woman who would have occupied this coffin is unknown, and it looks to be a mystery lost to time. Many mummified people from this period that were sold to people who then took them off to the four corners of the world were identified by hieroglyphics on the coffin but the lid of this princess contains only short religious phrases. But how did this artefact known to the British Museum as serial number AA22542 find its way to London? The most commonly told version of events starts in Thebes, known today as Luxor, where a female mummy who had laid in peace for over 3,500 years was unceremoniously dug up and sold to an Englishman called Thomas Douglas Murray when he was in Egypt in the late 1880s. The coffin was shipped to England, and Murray shortly afterwards suffered the curse of the mummy first hand, when he was injured in a shooting accident which saw his arm amputated. Then two of his servants, 
both of which who had handled the coffin, died seemingly for no reason. When the mummy arrived in England it was loaned to a journalist, but she was beset by ill fortune from the moment it entered her home. Her mother died, her relationship ended, and her dog seemed to go mad, howling all night long. Understandably, she insisted Murray take it back. By now Murray fully believed that the mummy was cursed, and he gave it to a friend, a Mr Arthur F. Wheeler, who then died. His sister, a Mrs Warwick Hunt of Holland Park, took the mummy to be photographed. The photographer died, obviously, but before he did, he was terrified to see the face of a living woman, superimposed over the painted female face on the coffin lid. He was quoted as saying, whose eye stared furiously with an expression of singular malevolence. One of the photographs of the coffin was bought by somebody who took it home, and then every piece of glass in their house shattered. Murray begged Mrs Warricun to get rid of the mummy, to get it out of their lives, so she donated it to the British Museum, or at least she donated the coffin lid. What happened to the rest of the coffin and the mummy itself isn't clear. But this isn't exactly the true origin story of the coffin lid which was placed on display in 1890 in the first Egyptian room. The truth is that the unlucky mummy, as the coffin lid became known, due to it being believed to bring bad fortune, is not Murray's mummy at all. It's a completely different ancient Egyptian artefact, and based on its shape and the style of decoration, it's from the late 21st or early 22nd dynasty, which is around 950 to 900 BC. The stories of the misfortune and death that seem to follow that unidentified mummified person appear to be at least based in truth. But due to the problems and misery it seemed to cause, it was returned to Thebes and reburied. The mix-up has clarified in an article from issue 36, volume 3 of the International Psychic Gazette, which was published in September 1916. It's an article entitled, The Mummy of Evil and the War, and it was written about Londoners who are convinced that the cursed coffin lid was going to lead to World War I being lost, and that it must be destroyed for the good of the nation. The article in its entirety reads, Marion Ryan, writing in the weekly dispatch of August 27th, says that during the last two years the directors of the British Museum have received letters demanding the immediate destruction of a most sinister mummy in the Egyptology section. The writers were convinced that the war itself, and every setback the Allies have suffered, were attributable to the existence of this mummy of evil. Miss Ryan says the sarcophagus is buried away in dark and secret places, but there is no mummy in it, nor has there been all the while credulous visitors to the museum were gazing with mingled interest and fear at the painted cover. After giving a catalogue of the disasters attributed to the mummy, the writer quotes Dr Bunch, the celebrated Egyptologist at the British Museum is saying, The nucleus of all these wild and fantastic tales is this. We have the sarcophagus which once contained the mummy of a high priestess of Egypt, who may or may not have committed evil deeds in her lifetime. In some strange way the traditions which gathered about two mummies brought to England by people not connected with the museum at all, became attached to the sarcophagus of the high priestess. One of these mummies belonged to Mr Ingram, and was in the British Museum for a time on exhibition before it was sold by the owner to the late Lady Mucks. There were traditions of an evil influence wielded by this mummy, which led to disasters being brought down upon various people, but I have never heard them verified. The other mummy was brought to England by a wealthy Englishman. That mummy was never in the British Museum, 
but during the time it was in England, there were stories of strange and terrible disasters said to have happened to those who came under its influence. These tragedies occurred so often and so mysteriously that they went beyond the range of coincidence, and the owner of the mummy did not care to possess it any longer, so arrangements were made to take it back to Thebes and rebury it. These arrangements were carried out in due course, and the mummy of that high priestess or princess is disposed of for all time probably, but the stories of her influence for evil, which gradually leaked out, seem in some mysterious way to have attached themselves, or been attached, to the cover of the sarcophagus of the high priestess here in the museum. There is no mummy under that cover, but those who wish to believe the stories were not deterred by that fact, and have at various times sent protests to the museum. Another issue of the International Psychic Gazette ran a story that claimed that the staff of the British Museum were so scared of the malevolent powers of the cover of the coffin that they had it removed and replaced with a replica. The real coffin lid was then transported to America in the cargo hold of a ship. That ship was called the Titanic, and the curse was the cause of that ship famously sinking on the 15th of April 1912, costing the lives of around 1,500 passengers. A story in a newspaper called The Globe from April 1924 tells of a strange occurrence where people who visited the museum and looked at the coffin lid would fall ill. One poor man even wrote to the museum, claiming that he had been seized by cardiac pains after looking at the cover of the coffin. It's unclear when the stories of the Egyptian princess making her way down into the underground station began, where she was said to have been seen wearing a magnificent headdress and loincloth, screaming and wailing so loud that the sound would travel down the tunnels and be heard at other stations. It's claimed by some sources, although I can find nothing concrete to back up these claims, that prior to the British Museum station closing in 1933, two British newspapers promised a cash reward to anyone brave enough to spend a night in there alone, which no one did. It seems likely that the connection to the station came about in 1935, two years after the station closed, this was the year when a British comedy thriller movie called Bulldog Jack was released. It featured a secret tunnel which ran from the underground station to the Egyptian room at the museum. This was entirely a work of fiction, as no such tunnel exists. But people bought it as fact, and it absolutely terrified them, as it confirmed their suspicions that the 3,500-year-old princess can make her way down into the underground at will. The British Museum station is now closed, but some claim that the ghost had simply moved to the nearby Holborn station, and this claim was strengthened by two women disappearing at Holborn station on the very night that Bulldog Jack was released. There's no record whatsoever of this disappearance being reported in newspapers of the time, but the many accounts of this tale online and in books go on to say that screaming and moaning was heard around the time of their disappearance, and for many nights that followed. Unusual scratch marks were later found on the walls, if you want to go and see the cursed coffin lid, it's on display in room 62 of the British Museum. Gaze upon her if you dare. In 1972, a young lift operator at Covent Garden Underground Station had a strange encounter. After the last train of the night had departed, he ushered the last of the passengers out of the station and began to lock up. But he was surprised to see a tall man in an old-fashioned waistcoat and top hat, standing in the ticket hall. He was confused. Everyone had left the station, or at least he thought that was the case. But he'd clearly made a mistake. He apologised to the strangely dressed man for locking him inside the station, and he said he would retrieve his keys 
and unlock the door so that he could get out. He turned his back for just a second, and when he turned back, the man had vanished. The operator assumed that the man had gone down to the platforms in the hope of catching a late train, but he could find him nowhere. He later mentioned his experience to a colleague, who immediately knew who he had encountered. He showed him an old photograph of William Terrace, an actor who'd been known to the public as Breezy Bill, or Number One Adelphi Terrace, and who was one of the most respected stage actors in Victorian London. The operator said, yes, that's him. Where did he get that photograph? His colleague explained that this was William Terrace. He was well known to many of the station staff, and he had been murdered almost a hundred years earlier. Four days later, the operator saw the man again, and when he tried to speak to him, the man vanished. William Terrace was regarded as a fine actor, one of the best treading the boards in London at the time, and he was also known as a good man who always made time for others less fortunate than himself. A recipient of Terrace's kind nature was another actor by the name of Richard Archer Prince. Prince was a good friend of Terrace, but he had a reputation for unpredictable behaviour and an alcohol addiction, which had earned him the nickname The Mad Archer, and cost him many roles over the years. One example of this was in 1885, when he was sacked from a role in a play called Harbour Lights, at the Royal Adelphi Theatre in the Strand. Prince had made an unacceptable comment about the show's star, William Terrace. Despite Owen Prince nothing, Terrace attempted to help him find acting roles, and even suggested that he sign up for the Actors Benevolent Fund to ensure that he was secure financially. Despite the unnecessary kindness that Terrace had shown to Prince, it backfired in a fatal incident on the night of the 16th of December 1897, at the Royal Adelphi, where Terrace was playing the lead role in a play called Secret Service. Terrace was about to enter the rear of the theatre, when Richard Archer Prince emerged from the shadows wielding a knife, and he stabbed Terrace three times. Several horrified onlookers saw the whole thing, and Prince was restrained until policeman P.C. Bragg took him away to Bow Street Police Station. The wounded William Terrace was carefully taken into the theatre, but 20 minutes later he was dead. He was being held by his leading lady, and some say his lover, Jesse Millward, as he slipped away into death. He was just 50 years old. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Some versions of events claim that just before he breathed his last, Terrace said quietly, I'll be back. The reason for Prince's murder of Terrace was that he was furious after finding out that his application for financial support from the Actors Benevolent Fund was refused. 
and he sought to take it out on the man who attempted to help him by suggesting that he should sign up. On the 13th of January 1898, Prince was found guilty of murder, but he was deemed to not be responsible for his actions due to insanity. He was locked up in Broadmoor Prison as a criminal lunatic. He died within those prison walls in 1937. The 1972 reporting was the last time that William Terrace's ghost was seen in Covent Garden Underground Station, but he had been seen many times previously, since at least the 1950s. Some witnesses describe him striding down the tunnels, while others saw him standing in the ticket hall or staff room. He gained a reputation for appearing in the staff toilets. Some staff became so fearful of encountering the phantom actor that they asked to be transferred to a different station. There are several theories about why Terrace's ghost haunts Covent Garden Station. Some believe that it's because he used to frequent a bakery that was once located on the site of the station. Others believe that he is restless because he was murdered so tragically. His ghost is also said to haunt the Adelphi Theatre in London's West End, where he often performed. This was most famously written about by ghost hunter Peter Underwood, who was told about the ghost of William in 1955 by Elaine Terrace, William's daughter. He wrote all about it in his legendary book Haunted London. The first time Terrace was seen at the Adelphi was in the 1920s. In 1928, a young actress was taking a nap in a dressing room prior to a performance. Her bed began to shake and she woke to find herself surrounded by a strange green mist. Unseen hands grabbed at her, hands that would leave bruises on her arms. Two mysterious knocks on the door brought the experience to an end. This particular dressing room had often been used by Terrace's lover, Jesse Millward, and the door led out onto Maiden Lane. Apparently, when Millward was in the dressing room, Terrace would pass by and knock on the door twice, to let her know that he'd arrived. His restless phantom is also said to remain at the London Lyceum Theatre in Wellington Street, Westminster, as well as at his grave in Brompton Cemetery in Kensington. Open in 1890, the Elephant and Castle station is one that the drivers on the trains fear, as opposed to the commuters. On all too regular a basis they will stop at this station on the Bakerloo line in the evening hours and see a girl get on board. This girl has become known as the girl on the train. They never see her again. She never gets off, but what they do experience once they know she's on board is the sound of running footsteps up and down the quiet carriages and tapping and knocking on the doors of their cab. Who she is and why she seems to repeatedly make this journey is unknown. The embankment station was constructed in several phases with the earliest being opened on the 30th of May 1870. Unlike other stations on the underground that are said to be haunted and have a backstory to explain why they appear to be so active, embankment doesn't. But there is a disused tunnel called Pages Walk and this particular tunnel unnerves workers and janitors who have to work down there. They regularly report hearing doors constantly slamming open and closed, lights turning themselves on and off when they know there's nobody else there. At least no one living. Nearly everybody who has to work down there reports feeling a strong sense of being watched by unseen eyes as they go about their day, convinced that they aren't welcome. Farringdon Underground Station is one of the oldest surviving railway stations in the world, being opened in 1863 as the terminus of the Metropolitan Railway, the world's first underground passenger railway. Ever since the station was first opened, the screaming of a young girl has been reported. This is most often reported late at night when the station is quieter. Whether this is because the screaming happens more at this late hour, 
or because the screaming is lost amongst the noise and hustle and bustle of one of the country's busiest railway stations. The screaming is described as a young girl in pain. The young girl in question is believed to be the sorry shade of 13-year-old Anne Naylor. Anne was an orphan who was apprenticed, as one of many young orphans, to a hatmaker called Sarah Metyard. But Sarah and her daughter Sally abused young Anne in the most unimaginable ways. I'd love to say this is just a story or mere legend created to give Farringdon's ghost an identity. But sadly, the life and death of young Anne Naylor is fact. The Metyards beat Anne, confined her to the attic, and fed her nothing but bread and water. She managed to escape from them twice, begging for someone, anyone to help her, but both times she was dragged right back by the Metyards, who treated her even worse, taking her punishment too far on the second occasion, costing the life of the young orphan. An entry in the Newgate calendar, which was a popular collection of moralising stories about sin, crime and criminals in the 18th and 19th century, has an entry for what happened following Anne's second escape from the Metyards. It makes for difficult reading. They put Anne in a back room on the second story, tied a cord around her waist and her hands behind her, and fastened her to the door in such a manner that it was impossible for her to either sit or lie down. She was compelled to remain in this situation for three successive days, but they permitted her to go to bed at the usual hours at night. Having received no kind of nutriment for three days and two nights, her strength was so exhausted that being able to walk upstairs, she crept to the garret, where she lay on her hands and feet. While she remained tied up on the second floor, the other apprentices were ordered to work in an adjoining apartment, that they might be deterred from disobedience by being witness to the unhappy girl's sufferings, but they were enjoined, on the penalty of being subjected to equal severity, against affording her any kind of relief. On the fourth day she faltered in speech, and presently afterwards expired. The other girls, seeing the whole weight of the body supported by the strings which confined her to the door, were greatly alarmed, and called out, Miss Sally, Miss Sally, Nanny does not move. The daughter then came upstairs, saying, If she does not move, I will make her move and then she beat the deceased on the head with the heel of a shoe. With Anne dead, Sarah and Sally covered up the death, telling anyone who would listen that she'd ran away for a third time. They concealed her body inside a box in the garret, but after two months the smell became unbearable, so they cut her lifeless body up into pieces, and under the cover of darkness dumped it into a gully hole on Chick Lane. The body parts were found a short while later by two watchmen, but the identity of the victim and the murderers was unknown, and for years the Metyards weren't even so much as suspected. Sally's daughter Sarah left home and moved in with a man named Mr Rooker. Sally became paranoid that her daughter might share the secret with her new partner, and started threatening her to stay quiet or she'd silence her forever. This backfired when Sarah confronted her mother, in front of Mr Rooker, and inadvertently confessed to the murder in her angry rant. Once Sarah and Mr. Ruka were alone, he asked her what she'd meant, and she told him everything. Mr. Ruka went straight to the police officers of Tottenham High Cross Station and told them of what he had learned. The police arrested the mother and daughter, they were found guilty, and sentenced to death. What happened next is recorded in a report from the time, which is included in the Grim Almanac of George and London by Kate Ludlow and Graham Jackson, which was published by the History Press in 2012. 
The Met Yards had to be separated in prison lest they attack each other, and would always blame the other if asked about the crimes. Unbeknownst to the jailers, the mother had been starving herself in an attempt to cheat the gallows. A few days before the due date, she fell into a fit and swooned away. She never spoke again. On the 19th of July 1762, before 9am, the women were put onto the cart. The ordinary had a fight to get them through the enormous crowds, and found the mother stretched out like a statue, not even seeming to breathe, though her chest twitched convulsively now and then. The daughter begged for prayers from the crowd, and looked about for Mr. Ruka. She added that she died a martyr to her innocence. After they were hanged, their bodies were displayed before the public at Surgeon's Hall, then dissected. Farringdon Station was built upon the site of Chick Lane, where young Anne's dismembered corpse had been dumped a little over a century earlier, and it appears that she's not been able to find peace to this day, her cries of despair making the blood run cold of anybody who hears them. Highgate Station originally opened in 1867. The platforms of the surface station remain, but were last used in 1954. The section of the line through them to Finsbury Park was closed in 1970, and lifted by 1972. One of the original 1867 station buildings still exists, and is in use as a private house. Highgate is home to a ghost train. Residents close to the station hear the sounds of a train coming and going from the station, even though there's no train visible at the time, and the line has even had its tracks removed. Hyde Park Corner Station was opened on the 15th of December 1906, and the station today bears little resemblance to the one opened almost 120 years ago. It is now one of the few stations which have no associated buildings above ground, the station being fully underground. The current entrance to the station is accessed from within the pedestrian underpass system around the Hyde Park Corner Junction. The original Leslie Green Design Station building still remains to the south of the road junction, notable by its oxblood coloured tiles. It was used until June 2010 as a pizza restaurant, and since the 14th of December 2012 it has been the Wellesley Hotel. The building was taken out of use in 1932, when the station was provided with escalators in place of lifts, and a new subsurface ticket hall. Barry Oakley was the station supervisor working the overnight shift at Hyde Park Corner in November 1978. As he did nightly when he was on duty, he locked the station, made sure it was empty, and he shut the escalators down, ensuring that he properly removed the breakers. The breakers being a piece of equipment that stops the escalators from moving, as it prevents the electric current from running through it. He retired at the supervisor's office with his colleague, and all was quiet. At about 2.30 in the morning they heard a commotion outside in the concourse. When they investigated, the sound was the escalator switched on and moving. But this should be impossible. Back in the office Barry noticed that he felt incredibly cold. He could see his own breath. And he had a horrible feeling that he was being watched. He turned around to talk to his colleague and noticed that he was backed right up against a wall and was white as a sheet. He thought perhaps he'd fallen ill. It took Barry about 10 minutes to get his colleague to come around, and when his colleague spoke he said, Did you see it? Did you see the face? He explained that he'd seen a face loom through the door and peer into the room. Shortly afterwards he told Barry that he was going home, he didn't want to stay there. He never returned to that station ever again. The Kennington Loop is a section of track where no passengers ever go. It's a loop where northern line trains let the passengers off at the last station before entering. 
The driver then waits for the signal to turn around, which can often take up to 20 minutes. All the while they're sat there alone in that 150-year-old stretch of tunnel. While they're in the loop, there's absolutely no way of a passenger getting access to that area to board the train. A death occurred in Kennington Loop. A man was unaware that the train had just let everybody off at Kennington, the final station before the loop, and was trying to get on board between the cars at the station. The train started moving, and with nowhere to go the man was dragged beneath the train within Kennington Loop, and killed. An unsubstantiated tale of another death within Kennington Loop was said to have occurred in the 1950s, when a workman was killed while working on the tracks, and accidentally electrocuted himself. A driver and a train guard both experienced exactly the same thing in Kennington Loop in the early 1980s, but their experiences were four years apart. They were waiting for the signal to move out of the loop, when suddenly they could hear the interconnecting car doors opening and closing. They both describe it as a very distinctive, unique sound. The sound got closer as the doors, one by one, opened and closed in each carriage, working their way towards the front of the train. On both occasions, the train was searched to try and understand why the doors were being activated and closed, as if somebody was walking through the train. But the train was empty. King's Cross and Pancras Station opened in 1863 as part of the Metropolitan Railway, and since at least 1998, a young woman in her mid-twenties, dressed in 1980s clothing and blue jeans, has been seen throughout the station. She is seen sobbing uncontrollably, with her arms outstretched. In the first reported encounter with this unnamed phantom, she was crying her heart out, and a kind commuter took a moment to stop to ask if she needed some help. No sooner had she asked if she could help, but the kindly passerby was horrified to see another passenger walk straight through the upset woman, at which point she disappeared. She has been seen on many occasions since. No one knows her identity, but she's been linked to the fire that took the lives of 31 people on the 18th of November 1987. Another spirit that has claimed to lurk within King's Cross and Pancras is the first century Celtic queen Boudicca. Boudicca led a revolt against Roman rule in ancient Britain in AD 60 or 61. She was the giant ruler of the British Iceni tribe, who lived in a region of Britain now known as East Anglia, with her husband Prasetagus. In AD 60 Prasetagus died, having left his kingdom to his two daughters and to the Roman Emperor Nero. However, the Romans ignored Prasetagus's will and seized control of the entire Iceni kingdom. They also mistreated Boudicca and her daughters, and Boudicca vowed revenge. Boudicca rallied the Iceni and other British tribes to revolt against the Romans. She had led a large army that sacked the Roman towns of Camelodunum, which is modern-day Colchester, Londinium, which is modern-day London, and Verulamium, which is modern-day St Albans. These towns were torn apart, in a horror show of flames, slaughter, and rampaging chariots. The Romans were caught off guard by the revolt and suffered heavy casualties. However, the Roman governor eventually rallied his forces and defeated Boudicca's army in a decisive battle at Watland Street. After this defeat, Boudicca took her own life, rather than face inevitable death at the hands of the Romans. But why does she supposedly haunt an underground station? Well, some have claimed that her final resting place is beneath one of the platforms, although nobody seems to be able to agree upon which one, with some claiming it to be eight, some nine, and others ten. This connection seems to have been first suggested during World War II, when it said that Boudicca, 
upon her chariot pulled by two noble steeds, would be seen moving at speed through the tunnels, her long golden hair flowing behind her. King William Street Station opened on the 18th of December 1890, but was only operational for a decade as the station closed on Monday the 26th of February 1900 when the Moorgate extension opened. The original station building was demolished in the 1930s, although the parts of the station below ground were converted for use as a public air raid shelter during World War II. Access to what remains today is via a manhole cover in the basement of Regis House, contemporary office building, where the original cast iron spiral staircase leads down to platform level. The lift shaft was filled in with concrete during the construction of the original Regis House. What does remain though is the King William Street Tunnel, the oldest and longest disused tunnel on the network, running from Borough Street to London Bridge Street. In 1980 work began on a centenary celebration and photographs were taken of the tunnel to be used for a book. Two men headed down into the tunnels to take photographs and made several trips underground before getting the photos that they were happy with. However, on every single journey down there they both felt that they were not alone. They passed it off as paranoia. They were underground in a creepy tunnel that was abandoned 80 years earlier. It was only natural it would feel a bit eerie. They took the final photos for the book and when they looked at the images they were staggered to see a figure in the photos. Clear as day. It was off to the left hand side and almost looked to be not human. Perhaps the unsettling feeling that they had of there being somebody else down with them wasn't just the paranoia that they passed it off as. Check out the photo over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod and let me know what you think it could be. Leicester Square Station opened on the 15th of December 1906 and is situated in the west end of London within walking distance of Theatreland and Chinatown. While it's commonplace for passengers and workers to hear the screeching noises as trains enter in the station and the brakes being applied, the screeching of braking trains is heard even when the station is closed and empty throughout the night. The cause of this phenomena isn't clear, yet it's reported all too often. Liverpool Street Station, which opened in 1874, experienced the impossible in the summer of 2000. At 2 o'clock in the morning, long after the last train had departed and the station had closed for the night, a line controller, who is somebody who watches the CCTV in the underground 24 hours a day from a remote location, spotted something on the monitor that he couldn't comprehend. A man was stood on the platform at Liverpool Street Station, as if waiting for a train. He was wearing white overalls and seemed to be holding a toolbox. Steve Coates, the station supervisor that night, was contacted by the line controller, and he made his way down to the platform to find out why there was a man there and see if he could help. He got down to the platform, but it was completely deserted. It was silent and empty. He radioed to the line controller to say the man wasn't there, and the response he received chilled him to the bone. The guy is right next to you. How can you not see him? The workman was still visible on the monitor, and he was stood right next to the supervisor, who was seemingly unaware of his presence. As Steve Coates went to leave the area, he noticed on a bench a discarded paper pair of overalls. He knew nobody had been there. Nobody could possibly have left the area without passing him. He said that it sent a chill up his spine. In more recent years, a burial ground has been found in the area around Liverpool Street Station. In 2015, up to 3,000 skeletons were excavated from the Bedlam Burial Ground, which was used between 1569 and 1738. So the oldest remains are those victims of the Black Death. 
Beneath the burial ground runs a Roman road, adding to the long rich history of the site of this station. In 1984, Paul Fisher, a trainee manager, was walking along a northern line tunnel late one night after the trains had stopped for the day and it was empty, silent and still. Well between Oval and Stockwell stations, he spotted a light up ahead in an area called South Island Place. He wasn't concerned, as it's not unusual to come across another member of staff while walking the tunnels, although he had been led to believe that he would be working this stretch of tunnel alone that night. As he got closer, he could see by the light of the man's rather unusual lantern that he was an older man. He struck a polite conversation with who was quite clearly another underground worker. He told the man that he was surprised that he had one of those old lamps, known as a tilly lamp, rather than the battery-powered torch that Paul was clutching. The man said, Oh, I like it better. They wished each other a good evening and Paul carried on his way. When he reached Stockwell, he phoned his supervisor from one of the offices to check in and he told him that he'd walked the stretch of the track. He asked him passing what the other guy had been doing down in the tunnel at South Island Place. What other guy? the supervisor asked, as he'd not booked in anybody else to work. Unsure of who was down there, Paul and his supervisor had to head down into the tunnel and search for the man. His supervisor started at Oval, and Paul started at Stockwell, and they walked towards one another, knowing that they would meet somewhere in the middle. They didn't find anyone, when Paul retold his story and mentioned the tilly lamp, his supervisor stopped him and said, You know about South Island Place and the ghost stories, don't you? Paul didn't. So his supervisor told him about the ghost of a railway worker who'd been encountered in that area of the tunnel on a number of occasions before, always working by the light of a tilly lamp. The cause, so it's believed, is that in the 1950s a maintenance worker was killed in that part of the northern line while working on a compressor. He didn't hear the approaching train. The driver of the train that hit him said the man had been holding a tilly lamp. Piccadilly Circus Station opened on the 10th of March 1906, and today it's one of London's busiest stations. Over 30 million commuters use the station every year, but what very few of them know is beneath street level are the abandoned Piccadilly Circus tunnels, untouched and forgotten for almost a hundred years. By 1922, 18 million people were using this station annually, and the station simply couldn't cope if that volume continued to increase. So a decision was made to remodel the station. Work began in 1925, with the existing station staying open during the building, and it took 150 men four years to complete the work, working through the night, every night. The upgrade to the station was opened in December 1928, and the total remodeling of Piccadilly Circus Station left behind many tunnels, which were now not needed when the original station was closed to the public in 1929. In the station today, workers and passengers report strange banging and clattering sounds, most often in those quiet times, in the early hours of the morning or in the evening. The noises often seem to be coming from behind walls, which are not accessible whatsoever. In around 1910, workers at the station were communicating to one another via Morse code. On one occasion when they were all together taking a break, they received a message in Morse code. But who sent it? They were all in the same room. The message, eerily, spelt out S-O-S. Was this a cry for help from beyond the grave? The final stop on our journey through the haunted London Underground is South Kensington Station, which opened on the 24th of December 1868. Almost a century ago, in 1928, Witnesses at the station reported hearing a train whistle, 
followed by a steam train coming into the station with a man wearing a peak cap clinging onto the side of the train. It didn't stop, and it disappeared along the track, with the train and the unidentified man never being seen again. Mind the gap. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod, or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod, where you will see photos galore relating to the haunted London underground. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, the ghost stories and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. What's more, there's currently a free 7 day trial, so you can get access right now to November's special episode, which joins me overnight at the Bedlam Theatre in Edinburgh. Then there are all of the other special episodes waiting for you right now, which include the big Halloween special at the Golden Fleece in York, the National Railway Museum, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon, the Camo Estate, and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. The Christmas Patreon episode coming out soon will see me spend a night at Kielder Castle in Northumberland. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2, perhaps as a Christmas gift to me, at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, in the first of a two-part special, we're turning our attention to a gothic revival mansion house in Gloucestershire, a mansion that was mysteriously abandoned by its builders in the middle of construction, leaving behind a building that appears complete from the outside, but with floors, plaster and whole rooms missing inside. The building today is known for the spooks and spectres that are believed to call it home. The short man seen standing in the chapel doorway staring at the stonework. The Irish woman heard singing in the kitchen. And the tall man who appears to be eternally searching the house for someone. Next week, let's find out all about this enigmatic mansion together when we step through the doorway into the unfinished Woodchester mansion. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted?